I wanted to say something at the start of our message time about um, Haiti and what's going on down there. And uh, as, as most of you, I'm sure, no doubt know that, that Tuesday a massive earthquake went there. And if there's any part in the world that can identify with uh, earthquakes, it's us. We understand that here. And yet here it is, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, it couldn't have happened in a, in a worse location when you look at it from a human standpoint. No question about it. And um, I want to show you a video right now that, um, that uh, just kind of moved me this week. I'll just warn you, it's a little bit, um, it's, just, it's just what happened down there, but I'll just uh, guard your eyes if you're sensitive to some things. It's disturbing to know and see what went on. Um, but we want to do that just to, to see. This was Tuesday of this week, uh, not far off of, of our country's border. And so um, runs about two minutes long, and we're going to watch that right now, and uh, we'll get started after that. just get three volunteers to raise your hand and, uh, and pray for, for Haiti um, as, we, as we start our service right now. Thanks, Clink. Thanks, Mindy. And thanks, Korea. Um, listen, just a couple of things that you can be praying for. Uh, one is that um, the, the agency we adopted through um, works with, with those in Haiti as well. And when we talk to our social worker over the last year, we're always asking her where well, she's telling us where the great needs are. And she told, she told us probably a year and a half ago, she said, man, push towards Haiti. Haiti's got kids galore and they need help. And um, she knows I'm a pastor. And she said, push your people towards Haiti. Push, you know, get, that, get the word out about Haiti. And I'll tell you one of my prayers is you see this, respond in love. And you go, well, what can I do? Um, and, and one of the ways I would invite you to respond is this. If you don't know where to give, you want to be cautious about who you give to and how you give. Sometimes 40% of your money goes to overhead cost, and very little of it or just a portion of it goes to helping the needy. Um, but they are saying to give money to, to it. And if you would like, you can designate money um, uh, to Haiti. Um, and I've got a pastor buddy of mine I met with on Wednesday, the day after the event, and his church uh, local Willow Glen uh, Church uh, ministers to 5,000 orphans there uh, every single day. And they were, he was in tears because they were still missing some people uh, on the ground there that, that worked there. And secondly, another place we would give the money to is through our adoption agency that, that works there. But one of the ways you can pray is that there are some of those who already have kids um, designated to them, and they're trying to push through legislature right now to give those kids immediate refugee status to come to these, these adoptive parents who the normal process would wait months and months from now. And we're just saying, this seems like a no-brainer. Please, Lord, open the doors for these kids to immediately come into these homes. And I would challenge you, church, um, not to overlook maybe God... Some of you are contemplating adoption. Maybe God is opening your heart and opening your mind to say, man, do we have room for now the, the above normal uh, number of orphans that have been now caused by, by this earthquake? And so um, maybe in that same order, we could just join with, uh, with Clink and Mindy and Gurria as they pray 
for, for the country of Haiti and what's going on. Father, you, you're awesome, God. Our pain and our tragedy on this world doesn't change that. Doesn't change the fact that you're all powerful and all knowing. And we know that, Lord, your people are suffering. Father, we pray that you would be their comfort. That you would be their guide in this terrible time, Father, when we've lost family members and friends and they're not knowing you. Pain and hunger and thirst. You're not oblivious to the Lord. Pray that, Lord, that you would touch hearts. That we would provide for them. If I drink water today, Lord, we need to give. If I ate today, if I had a roof, I need to give. We need to give. Father, let us be your hands and feet. And to those that are suffering, God, let them be comforted by you, by the children, this time, Father. Our hearts go out to them. We know that you're mighty to save, Lord. You heal. You comfort them. And we ask that you would do that for the people of Haiti for the family and friends who are lost in this, for the world, that they would be touched and come alongside and do what is right. And that's to give. We ask this in your name. Heavenly Father, we know that the suffering and hating did not begin this week. Like, we know that there has been deep suffering in this country for a long time. And I would pray that through this, this opportunity that is shedding light on the suffering of the world, Lord, we pray that you would bring hope. Yeah. We pray that you would open the doors to your gospel being spread in a wider way than it has before. Lord, we pray that the, um, that the outpouring of love from people who want to respond would um, continue by the people Lord, and that they would see you behind it. Lord, I pray that as <coughs> workers go in, Lord, that just be honest, and that just those who are working in your name, Lord, I pray that um, that the true needs would be met, um, and that people, most of all, would find me through this. Lord, as Dave mentioned, we know that there are many, many, many children who just need to be loved, and who just need a family. And Lord, I pray that you would just make a way for those children who are in California that wants them to make it here quickly and for those hundreds and thousands of others who are just waiting for somebody to love them. And that you would be uh, using this opportunity to open people's eyes, search people's hearts, um, and just point in the direction of loving other people. Lord, I pray that, that our confusion and indecision was not for the last not to act but that we would find something to do. Whether that be fair, whether that be just praying, or that we would have an action to go along with this suffering. That we wouldn't just sit by and let it happen. we thank you that you allow us to be your hands and feet in different parts of the world. And we pray that you would take us that.
Just on, just on that note of giving, um, I just want to say uh, we're going to do a more complete financial kind of snapshot of where we were in 2009 um, and also looking forward to 2010 and kind of reveal to you the plan we have and whatnot. And let me just say kind of in a brief summary that we met budget last year, which was a real joy. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, uh, and this is a generous church, and it's always a challenge talking about money in this regard. Um, I have no qualms asking you and instructing you to give your tithe to the local church. Um, and it's not because we need your money. Um, it's, it's because that's part of the discipleship process. There's a certain sense every single time you offer to the Lord in that way, uh, you're not paying God back for your salvation you're not paying membership dues. We kind of kid around about that a lot, but it's really clear we understand that. Every single time we do that, it's a declaration saying, I'm not married to my money. I'm not worshiping my money, and I absolutely want to invest in the, in the best thing possible. Um, that being said, let me just say that as we move into offering and let that continue as part of our worship after the, the message time, um, sometimes on a week like this, general giving takes a massive dip. And, and Haiti goes up. And what I want to say is this. We need you week in and week out to, to give to what's happening here at Neighborhood Bible Church or else some changes start to, to take place. Uh, while we met budget last year, there were a bunch of other um, items that we weren't able to fund. Uh, we kind of ran off a real strict, streamlined budget as we shared last year. We had some fixed costs. It was keeping the, the three staff we have, the lights on, the heat going, and some bare minimum things. We had vision like crazy for all this other stuff that did not get funded. We called that discretionary funds. And each quarter as money came in, we'd just go back and check it out and say, nope, there's enough for fixed income, and, and, and so we'll keep ministry moving. Um, but some of these discretionary items didn't come in. And by discretionary, I don't mean, you know, flat screen TVs back here, uh, Dave's new, you know, lifted truck, and nothing like that. 
uh, these were these were ministry ideas and, and vision that we had that we wanted to release people to go and do. Um, and praise God, he's not limited by that. Right. But we're really trusting God for for even greater increase this next year. So as you give, I, I would I would challenge you. I would instruct you give over and above what you've come to worship the Lord with today in your in your giving. And if you're a visitor here, all of this sounds really offensive and you go, man, all I do is talk about money. Not really true, but um, giving is a part of our worship for those, of, for those of us who call this our, our church home. And yet how amazing it is, um, you know, the Sharks, I think, next uh, tomorrow night's game are taking money for, for Haiti. And I thought, you know, there's some people, that's their church, that's as close as they get to church. And of course they're going to give to the Sharks because, you know, they trust that that will go somewhere and the people of God get to come together, and we're gonna we're gonna take whatever comes in, and we're gonna be uh, dispersing it to my buddy's orphanage uh, that I mentioned earlier, and see how we can help with that. So, um, listen, maybe it was a little bit uh, God ordained, um, just that we started on a much more serious note than we sometimes do in here. Um, I've really been praying a lot about this week and next week because it's talking about being born again, and I think there's a I think there is the potential for some in the church to just breeze by that and go, yeah, I've heard about that. I think there are those who, who, um, who maybe come to church and have heard that terminology and it's been corrupted. It's a biblical idea and a biblical term that we need to recapture and rekindle and keep. But I fear sometimes those words can get muddied up a little bit. We can get misunderstandings about it. I really pray that we get this this morning, and I've really been asking the Lord to do a work in this building and through my mouth and through your hearts and ears today, um, because if we get this, so much else falls into place. It's of utmost importance that we understand this, this demand. This series, as I've already kind of shared, is talking about the demanding life and the fact that Jesus and the whole of Scripture, God, makes demands on our life and that we're not going to soft sell that part. There's all kinds of promises that are given. There's all kinds of blessings that are instituted. There's all kinds of gifts that are talked about. There's tons of discussion about reward. But we're not going to just focus on that portion of Scripture. Or else, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we'd have to tear off huge chunks of Scripture. So we're not going to shy away from looking at some of the hard things, the hard claims of Jesus. If you'll notice this, uh, I would say this, that that many, if not... uh, most. We live in a weird area, but many people claim to be Christians in America. In fact, many would even qualify that as, as going on and giving these kinds of credentials. I'm an evangelical Christian. They might qualify it by saying, I'm a born-again Christian. And what happens sometimes is we, we hear these credentials, we go, okay, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. All of those, and we start to say, okay, this person's in our camp. They're theologically okay. I can, you know, I can break bread with them and we can hang out and, and whatever else because they've given these, these little credentials. Now, in this part of the country, it's maybe not quite so much that way. And I love that, actually. I love that in this part of the country, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say most people I meet say that they're a Christian. Um, I tend to get some attention once in a while because we have a lot of children. And a lot of people, um, well, a lot of children by, by this area's uh, you know, standard, I suppose, but what happens is a lot of times people will make, you know, judgment calls on us. You know, we were at Costco, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and, um, and we had all the kids going nuts. And, you know, Costco line always takes like 20 minutes. You know, I'm always there scoping it out. I'm that guy, like, looking for the shortest one. You know, we're on walkie-talkies. I'm like, move, move, move. Uh, but somehow we always get the longest ones. So the Lord teach me patience or something. But we're sitting there. Kids are going nuts. You know, we've got our, you know, nine carts of food and whatever else. 
And this person, this guy behind me is just kind of smiling. He's this older guy, and he's just kind of smiling at me, you know. And, I'm, and it's, it kind of reminds me of the way some of the people at Valley Church used to look at me, you know. They're just smiling. And, and he, um, he looks at me, and I, I kind of caught his eye a little bit, and he goes, LDS? <laughs> and I was, like, uh, I was like, hey, I'm trying to quit, man. <laughs> what are you talking about, you know? <laughs> oh, LDS. And so I was like, oh, Latter-day Saints. So, and he kind of winked at me, you know, and I was like, oh, no. I said, I said no, uh, no. I said, um, we're, we're Christians, but we just love children, you know. <laughs> and it kind of took me a little while to kind of catch up to speed of where he was going with that. Um, another guy that I just met, this was two, two weeks ago, and, it, you know, and he asked me if I had a family. And I said, yeah, I do. He said, do you have any kids? I said, yeah. And he goes, what are their ages? And I said, okay, hang on. I know this one. So I'm like, oh, there's 12, and uh, then there's 11, and then there's 8, and then there's 5, and there's 3. And he, like, took a little bit. You know, he's doing the math. He goes, you have five kids? I said, yeah. You have five kids? I said, yeah, I do. Are you Catholic? You know, it's like right away, right away there's this, there's this thing heaped on, you know, like, I mean, there must be some imposing religious statement telling this guy to have kids, because... Who in their right mind has a lot of kids, you know? And so people like to attach these terms. And that was a, an interesting question that actually led to a lot of discussion about the Lord. I said, well, I said, um, I said I'm a Christian and I believe in the Bible. And that's how I kind of qualified what, what maybe he meant by that. And, um, and we started to discuss life and end times and all kinds of exciting stuff. But people like to kind of give their qualifications, don't they, you know, and, and, um, and, and list the different things that, that kind of go on. Um, but I would say this, that while many claim to be Christians in America, um, it's always so disheartening and so challenging to explain to someone who's not from our culture, not from our country, that while you may have heard America is a Christian nation, please don't associate that with the God of the Bible. Please don't associate, you know, David Hasselhoff uh, you know, and the Bible as somehow, you know, married as the same cultural values. I know he's big in your country with CDs and stuff, but please separate it. While we've been said we're a Christian nation, we're, we're, we're really far removed in, in a lot of different ways. James asked this really penetrating question. In James chapter 2, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? And then he asked this great question, can such a faith save him? And that's really the most important question. Is, is, that, is, this, is this a faith that saves or is this a faith that, that tells you, give a certain amount, come to church on a certain day, have a this many number of kids, whatever the, you know, the outward rule might be. Is this a list of rules or is this a faith that saves? Now, I could even imagine engaging in conversation with someone and say, but I know that I've been taught that my belief saves me. And that's an interesting thing to have come back to you. Because James goes on to say this. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Bravo. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So that leaves you with this really challenging thing. Well, I've been taught that my faith saves. I've been taught that my belief saves. So, so which is it? Does faith save? Is it belief? What kind? How much? How often? And we can kind of put all these qualifiers on to see where do I have to go to make sure that I know that I'm saved. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus lays out this demand for us. And this is the one that, that we're going to kind of dive into and, and look at this morning. I read it already, so we won't read it again. But, but this demand is that you must be born again. And he's talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to the most religious of the religious. He kind of indicates that there's this first birth. There's this physical birth. And that is what happens to you naturally. And that's limited by nature. Being saved requires something else. Being saved requires the supernatural. Certainly not just here, but other places. The Bible really talks about two kinds of people. There are those who are physically alive, but spiritually dead. And there are those who are physically alive and spiritually alive. I suppose there's dead people in the Bible, so you could add, you know, a third category. But the Bible makes a really clear line. Now, I don't want to, you know, make any judgments here. I'm not God, but... But it would be as clear as this line right here and saying there's this camp of people and there's this camp of people. Jesus used all kinds of terms. Remember him? Sheep, goats, wheats and weeds. He, he just went through and he, he, he gave this very divisive language, frankly. Black, white, alive, dead. He didn't give kind of middle ground that said, and there's those, some, those who are really kind of morally good. We'll kind of see how it plays out. He says you're spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. Now, here's a really revealing question when you're talking to someone. I'm sure you've had this conversation where you're talking along and I just like to ask, hey, what kind of, you know, what kind of spiritual upbringing did you have? You know, and they'll sometimes share it. I'll say, well, where are you at right now? And they'll say, well, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Muslim. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I'm a whatever. Fill in the blank. And then a revealing question to ask them is to say, well, are you practicing? And I would say, flip a coin, half yes, half no. But that right there begins to start to, to, to open up the, the, the discussion a little bit, just to see what we're talking about. You know, I'm a, I'm a Catholic. Well, are you practicing? Eh, not really. It's more my parents' deal, and I kind of go to keep them pleased or whatever else. And So you kind of you get to know where they're at with things a little bit. And I thought about this for, for a Christian. It's a really wacky question for a Christian if you, if, you, if you were instructed by the Bible and if you read the Bible because that would be a little bit like asking this. Jonathan, are you alive or are you dead? And he says, well, I'm, I'm alive. I mean, the follow-up question to that then would be, are, are you practicing? Well, no, on weekends I breathe a little bit, you know, and once in a great while around Easter I eat a meal. I mean, it doesn't work. It's a bizarre question to ask that. So, so in essence, it's almost like if we're talking about a Christian, and we should reclaim Christian, I suppose, but I'm always looking for different terms because that's such a muddy term as well. But if we're talking about a Christian, the normal Christian, then it doesn't even make sense to say if we're practicing or not. You're alive or you're dead. And that's the teaching of the Scriptures. And that's why this morning is so important. It's literally life. Or death. I'm not sure if Weekend at Bernie's knew they were telling a parable, but in essence, this movie from when I was a kid, you know, it was dragging this dead guy around and making him look like he's alive. And I go, man, that's, that's a parable of what the Bible teaches about dead or alive. I want you to note what doesn't save Nicodemus. And, <clears throat> excuse me, boy, I'm getting fired up. And what Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He comes to him at night, and there, we, we taught through John, and so we went through all that. But notice this, 
These things don't save Nicodemus. Nicodemus acknowledges that Jesus is from God. You ever hear someone say, look, I acknowledge Jesus is from God. That must not save you. Because Jesus didn't say, bravo, you're saved on the spot. Surely you will enter the kingdom. And yet Nicodemus acknowledges that Jesus is from God. He also observes signs and wonders. So I don't know if you've ever been in a spiritual, religious experience, but oftentimes people find out I'm a pastor and they'll say, well, let me tell you about an experience I had. And they'll start saying this really phenomenal work. And sometimes it sounds like the work of the Lord, and sometimes it sounds like the work of the enemy. And the reality is there's spiritual forces at work all the time, and we know that. So this person will be relating their experience to me. And in essence, saying, you can't argue with my experience. I say, absolutely, I can't. But First John says to test the spirits. So I'm sure there's some dialogue there a little bit. But in essence, some, some, in some way, they're kind of saying, look, I had an experience. I, I had this super emotional time at Hume Lake one time, back in 1982, and, and, and therefore I'm saved. Um, I was at a Billy Graham crusade, and I, I was in tears. I mean, I don't cry. I was in tears, and I walked an aisle. Back in 1992, I was this, I was that, I witnessed this, I witnessed that. Those witnessing of signs and wonders aren't enough to save you. Nicodemus was evidently witness to signs from God. Not only did he witness them, but he gave credit to Jesus. Things that God did through Jesus. Here's this guy giving testimony to Jesus. You you, you could in a way say that he was glorifying Jesus. He was giving credit where credit was due. You know, I liken that to, in some ways, is coming and singing worship songs. Your name is like honey to my lips. Jesus, the holy and anointed one. Father of lights. I mean, we could, we could say all these right things. And you know what? We'd be stating truth. But that doesn't save you. Interesting that Jesus doesn't say, man, I wish more people would just recognize this incredible wisdom you have. Good on you, mate. You're out of here. Go spread the word. Instead, he chastises this Pharisee. And he says, he, he kind of bypasses all that he just said. And he says, but this one thing, he says, you know what? You must be born again. He then goes on to talk about the spirit giving birth to spirit. And he kind of brings up the word wind. And some of you know this, but in the Greek, the word wind is the word pneuma. And, and literally spirit is breath or wind. And he kind of does this little play on words right here. But he talks about the will of the wind. And that you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. You can kind of harness it. You can see the effects of it. But there's a mystery involved to all of this. And the Spirit giving birth to Spirit, there's just mystery to that. Now, I've personally witnessed four births in my time. And I love seeing little Landon back here, five weeks old. And getting to see a brand new baby is, is a reason. Here's what, here's what went on in my life and what happens in most people's lives. They see that, and seeing brand new life causes celebration. I mean, it just does. You have this weeping and gnashing of teeth that's been going on, you know, for hours before maybe, and that just that just turns in a moment to to weeping and shouts of joy, and just and just tears, just celebrating this brand new life. You know what else it does? It humbles you and causes wonder. Because as much as we can know intellectually about, about how a baby's made and all that goes on there with all of our modern science, you see this little child and you're humbled by that. And you go, wow, look at these tiny little fingernails. Look at this little body squirming around. I mean, I know I had a part in this, but 
whoa, God, you are at work right here. So it causes celebration and it causes wonder. And the new birth of a Christian, spirit giving birth to spirit, is exactly the same way. There's nothing that will keep this church more joyful than people coming to know the Lord. Than people getting saved from, from a life of slavery and darkness and being ushered into the kingdom of life. And becoming alive to the things of God. Nothing will keep this church passionate and afloat and joyful and moving forward and filled with a sense of awe than as we see our friends and our neighbors and strangers from around the community coming to know the Lord. That same element is there. I'm going to kind of quickly tackle a few things this morning. Who, why, and how of the new birth. And some of them are going to be quick, some of them are going to be shorter. Here's the who for it. Jesus demands of his followers certain things. In other words, there are certain demands that apply just to his followers. They wouldn't make any sense for, for non-followers to, 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 um, to, to heed that call. But this demand to be born again is actually a demand that he makes of the entire world. The entire world, he's demanding, you must be born again. He's making this command. It's a starting point. <clears throat> um, it's interesting that Jesus takes this idea of born, being born. And this demand that he's choosing to usher to the whole world, he grabs this ultimately universal thing that we all do, and that is be born, right? To be in existence is to be born. So he grabs that and he says, you must be born again. Every one of you has been born. Every one of you I want to be born again. Here's the why of it. I want you to think about your spiritual condition before God comes into the picture. Before God begins his saving work in your life. Now, when you see a little baby like this, it's so hard to imagine this. And first time parents get super angry at me for saying this. But this little sweet face. Watch these words we're going to put up next to him or her. I see blue. I think it's him. First one is this. Loving the darkness. We're actually born loving the darkness. Hard to imagine when you see this sweet little face. We're born not seeking God. You and I are born, every single one of us, sinful-minded. We're born unable to please God. We're born controlled by sinful passions. And maybe to sum it up best, Ephesians 2 says this, We were all born, every one of us, children of wrath. Now that would make a super weird birth announcement, wouldn't it? (laughs) Celebrate Johnny with us. Child of wrath. You know, it just sounds weird, and we don't want to think that. And, and I'll tell you, the, the teachers of our age teach us this isn't true. And you know what? We would rather like to be told man is basically good. Man basically steers the right way. But does any of this sound familiar? I mean, not just, not just on the news. The news is one thing, but that's easy enough to pawn off somewhere else. Doesn't that sound familiar in your own life? The book of James says that the reason that we fight and quarrel is because we want things that we don't have. And I see that time and again, not out there, but in here. And there's this flesh and this spirit that are at battle. What the Bible teaches is that we're not just sinful because of what we say or what we do. In other words, it's not the fault of genetics. We can't go back to our DNA and say, I was born predisposed this way. We can't go back to our, to our upbringing and say, if I could just get away from 
Maine, where I was born, and get away from that town, and get away from those screwed up people that gave birth to me, I'll be okay. And then things start going south over here in New Mexico, and you go, man, it's those people in Maine messing me up. I know sons and daughters are nudging mom and dad right now. It's not because of circumstances. Man, if only I had landed that job. If only I hadn't left that company. If only I'd said yes to that girl and not that woman. It's not any of these things. The Bible says we're not sinful just because of what we say or do. It's, it's who we are. It's, it's who we're born. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. And that's the fall of mankind. And that disease of sin has been passed on to everyone since then. I mean, we're only a few chapters into the Bible and the flood comes. Remember why the flood came? God floods the earth because all he saw was evil all the time in the heart of mankind. Those people didn't have it any better or worse than us. All this advancement, all this man is basically good. Where's it gotten us? Not much further from right there. To misunderstand the condition of yourself is to misunderstand the remedy. In other words, if I think, you know what, I'm, I am born basically good. I'm born as a blank slate and I just want to write good on me. Then, then if that's the case, if I can just get away from family, if I could just land the right job, if I could just get the right family situation going, if I could just find the right church that would teach me the right things, if I could just follow the right book on the shelf, whatever it might be, then maybe I'll get this thing straightened out. And that's misunderstanding your own current Self or sense. No time like the present to turn to a 70s TV hero to kind of help illustrate this. Those of you who are around my age will, will understand this more than others. But um, back in the day, we had metal lunch boxes. And uh, this is a guy by the name of Steve Austin. And Steve Austin was, catch this number, the six million dollar man. I mean, that was a lot of zeros back in the mid 70s. We thought that was, you know, that was the untouchable number out there. And now it's like any like sort of halfway decent rookies going, hey, I'm a $6 million man too. You know, it's not a big deal. But Steve Austin, not the wrestler, was the man. And, um, and, and I used to get to watch this show every other week. Because, see, I was raised one week in my very strict Christian upbringing that I'm sure thought Steve Austin wasn't appropriate. But on the other week, I got to watch Steve Austin. And I'd be with my mom and my brother and, you know, we'd just, we'd eat our, you know, dinner really quick or something so we could watch the six million dollar man. And, um, I actually went on YouTube to, to rewatch the intro of that. And I, I think I watched about nine, uh, intros to all these old TV shows. But, um, but in this it says this, we have the technology to rebuild him. And it says better and stronger and faster than he was before. Now, I'm not sure the year, but it had to have been mid to late 70s that I got the Steve Austin $6 million action figure. And the coolest thing about him was you look through the back of his head and his little bionic eye was there. And, like, you could see super cool stuff. Um, and his arm, like a little flap of his skin folded up, and you saw the electronics of his bionics going on. And that little Steve Austin doll was awesome. And had I begged harder, I could have gotten this lunchbox. But Steve Austin did this sort of thing. He'd pick up a tree and beat people down. And the guy in the suit is Oscar Goldman. Remember him? He's the boss. And he's, I don't know if he's chasing after him, telling him to chill out or what. But I love this one because he's, you know, he's playing a prank on a coming train. He's like, I'm going to mess this train up. He's like racing a horse. I don't know if he's accomplishing anything. He's just freaking a guy out by jumping over his car. 
And once again, the whole tree bit. I mean, just this was the pinnacle, really, for me. And every time I jogged laps or did anything, in my mind, I was Steve Austin, you know, better, stronger, faster than he was before. I bring up Steve Austin for a reason. You know what? You know what Nicodemus didn't need? He, he didn't need to be better or, or bigger or stronger at ministry. And, and that's the trap. I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about people in here that we fall into sometimes. Man, if I could just make spiritual things sound clear and crystal like that person when they share the Lord with someone. Man, if I just had more of a giving heart. Man, if I could just do this better. I'm sure God would let me in. And I think that we can theologically dance around and say, well, I know I would never say that because I know theologically that's not correct. But I think we live our lives sometimes that same way. I just need to be bigger, better, faster, stronger, or more of the ministry I'm currently doing. And praise be to God, dead people don't need better. Dead people don't need more. Dead people don't need makeup or props or anything. They need life. It's just taken out of your hands. Dead people need life. Switchfoot has this song, Mess of Me, and it's this great lyric that says, I am my own affliction. I am my own disease. There ain't no drug that they, that, that they could sell. Oh, there ain't no drug to make me well. There's, there comes a time in your life where you stop blaming. And you just get a sense and you realize, you know what? I keep thinking the problem's out there. It's not. It's right here. Some people work through several marriages or relationships time and again thinking, man, these deadbeat people that I keep dating. And finally the light comes on or the mirror gets put in front of them and they say, man, maybe part of it's me. And you start to get that sense. The doctrine, if you want to get kind of a fancy word that we're talking about here, is the doctrine of regeneration. And there's a book that I came across on Monday of this week, totally unplanned. I didn't even know that he was coming out with a new book. But John Piper has this new book out that I came across on Monday. It's called Finally Alive. And you know what it talks about? The new birth. The whole thing's just about the new birth. And so I just started reading it in preparation for this week even going, man, what a cool, timely book. But this is a massive theme that we need to get our heads around. I want to wrap up with this. How am I born again? As we talk about being born again, as we talk about the new life and getting a new heart and all of this, it makes you nervous for a couple reasons, I think. One is this. Just as at your physical birth, so it is at your spiritual birth. That you can't make yourself be born again. The control is actually out of your hands. And that sounds really scary to a lot of people. I mean, none of you in this room made yourself be physically born. It was the will of someone else. And the Bible teaches that it's, it's spirit that gives birth to spirit. And it's the will of God that you be born again. And so that control being taken out sounds really scary. I think the second thing is that this sounds a little bit like the spiritual birds and the bees. And that makes people nervous for a whole other reason. But it's exactly what it is. Talking about the new birth, talking about how life comes to be, is this, is this sense of spiritually talking about some of these same things we see physically. You might be sitting here thinking there's some, some dissonance in your mind saying, Jesus demands this of us, and yet we can't make it happen ourselves. Isn't that interesting? One of the first demands and one of the most preeminent and core demands that you get is this idea that you must be born again. By the way, you can't make it happen. 
It's a work of God start to finish. If that freaks you out a little bit, welcome to being a child of God and being and being and walking by faith. Where where all these demands that are to follow, guess what? They seem a little bit more attainable to us. But Jesus makes it quite clear. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So I'm going to demand this of you. This is a requirement to be in relationship with me. But guess what? You're not really in control of that. 1 Peter 1.3. Flip open to the very back of your Bibles and look at this verse. This is your memory verse for the week, by the way. And I hope you're in a community group and I hope you're memorizing this. I hope you're challenging your family to memorize these verses as we go through here. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, if you take any one verse out of the Bible, what you turn into is like David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. You turn into a cult. And you do really weird things, and the ATF comes and attacks your compound, and it gets really, really ugly. So what we want to do is we want to look at the whole of Scripture. That's really hard to do in a half-hour, 40-minute sermon. So that's part of why we have community groups. We dive in a little bit deeper and we ask some, some broader questions. We're not going to try to tackle this even in one week or the next two weeks. But it's important that you kind of marry this with other things you know in the Scriptures. But I'm going to lay out for you some verses to show you, in part, how the new birth happens. What's going on? What went on behind the scenes? Maybe the next time you share your testimony, it will sound a little bit different because of some of these verses. Here it is. First thing is this, that the Father sets His affection on you. All through the Scriptures, what we call this is the word grace. You know that God doesn't pick the best, sharpest-looking, most well-equipped, perfect, well-to-do family to do His work? First 30 Chapters of Genesis tell you that plainly. Miserable, miserable people that God just sets his affection on. Says, I'm going to love you anyway in spite of that. Guess what? Nation of Israel, nothing. Nothing to show for. He says, you know what? You're going to be a trophy of my grace. It's going to be pretty crystal clear to everyone around you something supernatural is going on. It's not your might, your chariots, or your sheer brilliance. It's going to be me at work. And that's really releasing to us as God's people. That we don't have to be the bionic people on His own. Ephesians 1, 3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Catch this. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Now, there's a lot there to unpack, so we won't unpack it. But bottom line is this. God, the Father, sets His affection on the elect. Secondly, Jesus dies the death, died the death, that we should have died so that we get the life that we could never achieve. That's why we celebrate and proclaim the cross over and over and over. And you'll never see this new life and this new birth separated from glorifying Jesus, talking about that it's all tied in by faith to the work of Jesus on the cross. 
Because that was where we got right standing. That was where we were freed from our old life. Romans 5, 6 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? So the finished work of Christ on the cross not only frees us from our sin, which is the past, He gives us power and purpose for this life, which is the present, and He gives us hope of rich reward, which is our future. Moving right along. There's the role of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. All kinds of places we could go here, but I pick 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That verse actually gives us two indications. One is the work of the Spirit. Some of you, as you think about the mystery and celebration of your new birth, your story of how you came to know the Lord, you could sit here and you could give testimony to God's goodness in your life. I sure can. I can look back and see places God spared me from going wrong in a home that was broken, in a heart that was broken, in wills and passions that were misguided and misdirected. And He just spared me from a ton of junk. I don't look at that and say, man, Dave, you made some great choices and friends. I say, God, you spared me by giving, providing me with friends. Not even friends that loved you, but friends that weren't into some other things that got me into some bad ruts. Thank you for that. Then you see the Spirit's role. And as Second Thessalonians say, belief plays a part. Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation. Catch this of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in jail. An earthquake happens. Some things go on. The jailer comes in and says, Sirs, talking to Paul and Silas, what must we do to be saved? You know what they replied? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, this is the same Paul who writes all this theological framework and all the work that goes on ahead of time to draw a person like that. You know what he did? He boiled it right down to this. Believe. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's where I think the teaching gets a little bit skewed, is if all we ever are taught is kind of the shiny outer package here, it's just belief, then we start to get this warped sense that it, it's, it's dependent on my belief and my strong faith and my correct pronunciation of a certain prayer or whatever else it is without all this backstory of what's going on. And yet we know it was God who calls us. God who from start to finish causes our faith to begin to grow and to mature to completion. And you know who gets the glory in all that? Because it's God's work? God does. It's not that I woke up one day as a brilliant 17-year-old and said, Man, today I am, going to, I am going to put the pieces together. It's that God, in some ways, took scales off my eyes. And I said, Whoa, I've been going to church every other week most of my life. I don't know that I'm saved. I need to get this figured out. 
It was God's work start to finish. It's not just observing or participating this divine nature in Jesus or in a friend or in parents. The fact is God calls us to participate in this divine nature. Band, why don't you come on up? I'm going to close with this uh, quote from, from Warren Wiersbe. Talking about his own conversion, he says this. And maybe your testimony someday will, will be the longer version. It will say something along these lines. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when He died for me on the cross. But as as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one night in May 1945 when I heard the Gospel and received Christ. Then it all came together, but it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. If we separate these ministries... We will either deny divine sovereignty or human responsibility, and that would lead to heresy. We're going to continue this discussion in two ways. One is in community groups this week, and the second is one week from today. We're going to pick up this discussion and finish this topic of the new birth. And let me pray, and we'll sing a song and be dismissed. Father, as we sing this song, Child of God, there's a line that says that somehow, mysteriously, your blood from 2,000 years ago has an impact on my life today in 2010. And God, I would pray for the person here who's unregenerate, who says, man, I, by definition from the Bible, am still left in my natural state. And while I thought I had some good credentials, I can't back it up and I can't know for sure. What's really going to happen to me? God, I thank you that you are drawing people right now as we speak, both within the sound of my voice and without the sound of my voice. Would you give courage to your children this morning as we walk out to our week, understanding that every person we talk to might be someone that you've been working on, the hound of heaven chasing them down. And that while they may seem antagonistic to our Christian views or to the gospel that we're sharing with them, Lord, that it may be your work and your way that a couple of weeks from now at some other church in some other location, your Holy Spirit is so heavy on them that they yield, they submit. Their laughter turns to mourning. They submit to the God of heaven and earth. They confess Jesus as the the Lord. God, we are well aware that this is a mystery. And God, we don't want to walk around pompously thinking we understand all of it. But God, we thank you for your truth that explains to us our condition before and after the new birth. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.